privilege this morning to hear God speak his word from the first chapter of John, verses 1 through 17. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, do any of you have an official or or unofficial list of movies that if you see them that they're on TV, you're automatically going to watch no matter what. You will not change the channel if you're flipping through and you get to, and you're like, there it is. Anybody have a list like that? I, I, yeah, I know it's a little bit different today because so many of you guys probably stream and you kind of have to pick. Like, I got to choose. I'm going to scroll through. But maybe it's, if I see it in the recommended or whatever, I'm always going to stop and, and watch that. There's, there's some movies in my house that if it's on, we're going to stop. It's hard to not uh, watch it if we see it uh, on TV. One, TV. I, I, you know, one of, the, one of the ones that's on my list uh, is a, a M. Night Shyamalan, I always say his name wrong, uh, movie uh, from 2002 uh, called Signs. Um, raise your hand if you've ever seen the movie Signs. I'm just kind of seeing who I'm dealing with here. Okay. I, I, if you haven't seen this movie, if you ever see it on TV, you need to you need to stop and watch it or whatever, stream it or I don't know where it is. But um, it, it's a, it's a I think it's a really cool movie. It's kind of funny. It's clever. It's got good dialogue. It's got some some scenes that once you've seen them, you'll never unsee them. You know, they're just always there. Uh, uh, he's the you know, anyway. Um, he's a, he's got some other movies that are like that, right? That once you know the plot, you can't unsee the plot, and you'll always know it forever. Um, but I also think it's kind of got a deep meaning. It's, it gives you something to think about. So w- without trying to give anything away, um, you can, I think 
there's a couple more pictures, yeah. Uh, without trying to give anything away, Mel Gibson is, is kind of the main character, and he's, he's dealing with a lot of tragedy in his, his life. He, lo- uh, he loses his wife, and um, her, her last words to him were very strange. If you've seen this movie, you know I'm having a hard time with this. Um, his last words to her were very strange, and, and so he finds himself wondering, are these words um, gibberish, or were they signs of something to come, Okay. And if you've seen the movie, you know how vague a description that just was. But, um, but the big idea, you could go to even the next one. The, the big idea of the movie, <laughs> this is where we get tinfoil hats, right, everybody? Um, the, the big idea of the, of the movie is, is how to decipher the signs uh, all, that all the characters are dealing with that. They're, they're seeing these uh, signs and they're trying to figure out what do they mean and what do we do, what do, we do with them got crop circles. It's a cornfield. This is a perfect Illinois farm movie. So um, anyway, uh, so, so we are here at the first Sunday of Lent, and, and we're starting a new series uh, now that we're here, uh, dealing with signs, dealing with signs. You see, in, in the book of John, uh, we are told that, that Jesus did several things um, that were not just physical acts, not just miracles, if you will, but, but signs. Um, and so, so what, what did John mean when he said that Jesus performed signs? So that's our question for this morning. What does it mean that Jesus performed signs? And, and so uh, today we're going to examine the first one. So let's pray together as, as we go to God's Word. Father, would you give us insight into your eternal, trustworthy, all-sufficient Word this morning? Use it to, to teach us, to show us a deeper, a deeper truth about you and about your kingdom. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. And so we are going to stay in the book of John, and we're going to read uh, John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so let's start uh, by, by talking about our original question, which is, what is a sign? What is a sign? The most common definition you'll find like in places like Webster's is something like this. A mark having a conventional meaning and used in place of words or to represent a complex notion. So now, this would apply to something like a red octagon 
Hopefully, all of us remember what those are. And when we see one, we know what it's, it's a sign. It's telling us a, a complex thing, but we know what it, we're supposed to do when we see it. Or maybe something like this, right? You know what this is. This is almost a universal sign. We should be able to recognize those. They explain something bigger. Uh, that, that, that helps us kind of get started, but, I, but Webster's has a, a, a further definition that I think is more useful here. It says, something material or external that stands for or signifies something spiritual. A material thing that stands for something spiritual. In, in Genesis, there was a, a rainbow, and that rainbow was there to remind Noah of a promise, right? So it was a, a something physical that had a spiritual meaning. Uh, and, and like we'll see in our, in our passage this morning, bread and wine were often uh, signs that represented life and joy. We see that all throughout Scripture. Uh, scholar Richard Phillips says that signs are a phil- physical illustration A physical illustration of a spiritual principle. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And and so John, in his book, he records uh, several physical acts of Jesus. And he tells us they are meant to be signs of a spiritual principle. Okay, so there's some, he did lots of miracles, but there are some specific ones, some specific specific acts that he did that John says, those were signs, those were meant to represent a bigger spiritual principle, a bigger truth about them. And and first I would say they are meant to be proof of the divinity of Christ. So these things that he does, they're they're describing who he is. They are letting us know only the divine could, could do this thing. You know, do, doing them is, is proof that he is the Son of God. Uh, God made flesh, as we just read in our, in our, our um, uh, John 1 passage that Bob read for us. Um, God made flesh. And these, these are signs of that. But there's more. And so the second kind of part of the sign is that they are meant to demonstrate something about the kingdom of God. They, they give us a truth about the kingdom of God because of how he did them and why he did them. They're, they're, they're deeper than just the act. They teach us a spiritual truth. Okay, so you're probably familiar with this, the story of the, of the wedding at Cana and the water into wine. What, what is Jesus trying to tell us? What spiritual meaning is, is, is Jesus attaching to this, this story here? And that's, that's our task for today. And so before we do that, I, I want to just kind of give, give you a few kind of background, like let's just acknowledge these things as a part of, kind of help with the story. So uh, the, the text tells us that Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding in Cana. And, and there are several Canas throughout kind of history. The one that we think this is is probably the closest to his hometown near the Sea of Galilee. Um, that's that's m- almost has to be where, where this was. And, and so it's assumed that he personally knew the family, um, which is why he was invited. It wasn't because he was famous or anything like that at this point. This is early in his ministry. Um, some suggest that he may have even been related to, you know, the groom or the, or the bridegroom, and, and that's why he and his disciples are there. But, but, but probably known, known to him personally. We know that Jesus' mother is there. Um, 
she may have been working at this wedding. She, um, she may have been entrusted to be a helper somehow. Um, the, the, the waiters listened to her, and so, so some of it suggested she might have had an official role uh, at, at the wedding. We, we, we just don't know, um, but, but she was there. Um, she seems to have insider information. Maybe, maybe she knows something that before the whole public at the wedding knows that they have run out of wine. So she, she comes to Jesus and says, there is um, no, no more wine. And, and, and so culturally you need to know that, that, that this was the responsibility of the groom. Um, the groom has committed a major social blunder. This isn't some small thing like, oh, there's not enough cake for everybody to have a piece. This was a big, big deal. Uh, there, there are stories that we have through history uh, during this time period of grooms actually being sued because they didn't do a good enough job as, as a kind of the, the social obligation. They didn't fulfill their, their part of the, co- the social contract of providing enough food and wine for the wedding. They were sued over this. So this is a big deal. Um, you may have heard the weddings of this time could, could go over several days, some even up to a week. We don't know how long this one was. But think of the financial burden of providing food and drink for a large number of people for several days. This, this would have been a major financial burden for this young uh, bridegroom, you could say. Um, did anybody, anybody have to pay for their own? You don't have to raise your hand. Maybe your parents kind of said, hey, you're on your own for your wedding and you had to figure it out. That's, that, that's kind of what this would have been like. You know, we're, 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 we're not able to just do this massive, huge, fancy wedding. We're, we're, we're covering this one on our own. We're going to the justice of the peace, and we're, you know, taking our parents out to dinner. That's about all we're going to be able to do, right, if you're just paying for your own. That's the, that's the situation that this young man is most likely in. And so he might not have had the, the money to provide enough wine. He may have known this was the case. He may have just underestimated, but, but it's a big deal. And so... Um, Mary finds out, and she comes to Jesus with this information. And if you, look at, if you look at our passage, you'll notice that she doesn't ask him to do anything. She just brings information um, to him. His response lets us know that there was sort of like an assumption. So maybe it was like, hey, they don't have any more wine. Like, do something, Jesus. Jesus. That, that, that's what we must assume out of, out of this conversation that they're having. And so, um, he, he, he says, right, what does he say? He calls her woman. He says, <laughs> woman, basically, wh- what is this to do with me? Is this my business? Um, to English ears, the word woman sounds very disrespectful. I don't know if it's become through, you know, vernacular and slang, but he said, hey, woman, you know, go make my dinner. I, I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. But, but when I read this, I go, oh, that doesn't sound very nice, Jesus. Why did you call your, your mom woman? It, it was a respectful term, but it was unique. It wasn't the normal word that he would have used. And, and so it was an intentional word. He is meaning to distance himself. And we can only kind of guess why, but, but most scholars would say they're, they're, he, he was communicating a separation to say, look, my, my, 
utmost devotion is to my Father and the plan that we have, the, the timing of that. So, woman, it, it, again, it's a polite term. And ma'am, ma'am, I, he, he's distancing. He's not saying I'm not your son anymore, but he's saying, look, there, in terms of this relationship, this is the priority. And so if you're asking me to do something that's outside of God's will, I, I, I'm not going to do that. And then he goes ahead and he does something. So we know that it must have been something he was okay to do. He wasn't connived into it. You know, some, some people say, well, yeah, that's why you should, you know, uh, you know Mary's the one that if, you, you know, if you'll talk to Mary, she'll, she'll put in a good word with, with Jesus and he'll, she'll, she'll help you get things done. That's really not what we should see out of this. Jesus decided that he could act and that, and that was his own decision. So nevertheless, Mary kind of says, hey, I think he's going to do something, and says, tells the waiters, hey, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Right? She's got experience of this, obviously. Jesus might do something totally weird, but just do it, because he, he's, he's more than you know. Right? So, so the waiters are like, okay, okay, I guess, I guess so. So the waiters are told um, to, to fill these, these, these jars with water. And, and we need to know that these jars, they're not... Um, they're not jars for drinking, but they're jars for cleansing. Some would say even jars for bathing. Um, they are wash basins, if you will. They, they, were, they were huge. Um, it says that they could each hold up to 30 gallons of water. So uh, they're made of stone. So imagine so, something made out of stone big enough to hold 30 gallons of water. These are massive jars. They're not small. But, but the, because they were made of stone, we know... Uh, they were a special use. They were set aside for purification because m- most people used pottery for their drinking water. And, and what they would do is, is, you know, if you've ever tried to drink out of pottery, you know at some point it's going to break down and it's going to lose its ability to, you know, to keep things clean. It's gonna, everything's going to start getting muddy. And at that point, they would just be tossed. Um, these, these, these jars for common use could be could be tossed when, when they weren't any good any longer. But the stone jars, they're always clean. They're always clean. And so notice that there are six of them. So we can estimate 180 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of water. We're not exactly told how, um, but the jars are, are full of water, and whenever this water is drawn out of them, it's now wine. We're not sure what that looked like. How did that happen? It just, it just did. And so um, it, it was good wine. It was not just any wine. It was the best wine. So much so that the, the master of the feast is impressed. Um, he would have been the guest of honor. He would have been the most important person who came to the wedding. So uh, whoever that was for, for them, they said, hey, you're the, you're, the, you're the master of the feast. And so they take it to him, and he says, wow, this is... This is great stuff. And, and he immediately brags to the groom or, uh, ab- about it and says, hey, way to go. You picked this. This is amazing wine. You picked the best. The groom's got no clue. He probably just naively shook his head and went, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, whatever you're talking about. Um, so let's just talk about the wine for a second. Um, you, you may have heard, uh, like I did at times in my life, that the, the people of the Bible had to drink wine because the water was so contaminated that, you know, it just made them sick and they couldn't drink water. So they had, to, they, they had to drink wine. It was just what they needed for nourishment. 
And that's not true. There are springs, there are uh, wells everywhere, right? There was even this purification water. It wasn't dirty water. They, They could choose to drink water if they wanted to. You may have also heard, uh, like I did as a kid, that Jesus made grape juice. This is Welch's finest that he produced. In these giant vats, he produced some, some of the best grape juice you've ever tasted. Again, not true. This wine contained alcohol. It was called the best wine by the master, and They knew what the best wine was, and that would have been the most fermented, the oldest, the aged wine. It's just like today, some vintage year, whatever. That's what we're talking about. It it is something to to note that wine in in biblical times was not as strong as it is today. Their their fermenting process didn't have all the, the things that we have now. So it would not have been as strong a wine, but it did contain alcohol. And, and people did use it at celebrations. We see that all throughout Scripture. Uh, wine in the Bible is also uh, often referred you know, to as a symbol of blessing, a symbol of well-being. Wine often represents joy and satisfaction, something that makes the heart glad. However, before you go too far, nowhere in Scripture is an excess of wine accepted or tolerated. It's always seen as wrong. Drunkenness and overindulgence are always condemned in Scripture. Reliance upon it, addiction to it, that's condemned. Okay, so we've broken down this story just a little bit, and maybe you're still getting to, okay, so what's the sign here? You haven't answered that question. What is the spiritual principle that is demonstrated in this physical situation? I I think there are several, and so I'm going to just kind of work through them and and, and bring it all together here. So first, I want you to notice the generosity of Jesus. We can say that if Jesus was generous in the physical, he will also be generous in the spiritual. 180 gallons of wine, it was meant to be symbolic. It meant something. It's Experts say it's incredibly doubtful that that much wine would have been needed for whatever wedding in Cana this could have been. Jesus is making a statement of his abundance. Of his abundance. So we see in places like Isaiah uh, 26, where it says, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Is Jesus fulfilling this Isaiah 26 prophecy? Yeah, probably. That's, that's probably an allusion to this. Jesus is able to provide an abundance. His blessings truly overflow. Next, as we kind of already mentioned, this is a sign that demonstrates his power and deity. This is a miracle. No one else could do this but God. And so it says that he demonstrates his glory. And we, we saw that in chapter 1. We see it in chapter 2. We're going to see it over and over. A big part of the idea of John is that Jesus is displaying pieces of his glory. And that happens here. Also, this is a sign of his spiritual role. Remember that there were six massive jars that were there to cleanse people. And you probably already know where I'm going with this. 
The servants would wash the guests as they came into the, to the feast so that they could be clean. And you and I know that washing our hands with water is a temporary fix. It's not a, a permanent solution. Scholar William Barclay says, The six stone water pots stand for all the imperfections, read incompletions, of the Jewish law. Jesus came to do away with the incompletions of the law and put in their place the new wine of the gospel of his grace. We're seeing a transformation here. Six is a sign of incompleteness in Scripture. That's not an accident here in this story either. Jesus would come and complete what the law came to do. To make a person truly clean. The law couldn't do that, but Jesus could. And how? Not with water. Not with water. Water won't do that. But by the blood of Christ. And so again, we're going to see here this abundance of Christ. As the wine symbolizes his blood, what he's come to do, there is an abundance of his grace. His grace would be sufficient. Not only was there an abundance in quantity, this 180 gallons, notice that it was quality as well. It was the best. It was the choicest, the best of all the wines. That's what Jesus is. And so I want you to just imagine with me for a minute. Imagine that life is a wedding feast. We all live our lives trying to be satisfied. The food and the the wine are symbolic of the things that we are looking for. The things that we hope will quench our thirst. The things that we hope will satisfy. It's an, an endless list of things uh, that we seek to, to, to find our joy and our contentment. But sadly, we will all come to the same conclusion as, as Mary says in the story. There is no more wine. There's no more wine. You and I can pursue whatever we want. Adventure, pleasure, comfort, security, wealth, fame, reputation, notoriety. Eventually, we'll come to the end of those pursuits with the inevitable conclusion. There is no more wine. It doesn't satisfy. Our thirst has not been quenched. It will never be quenched like that. And, and some, even after all that, turn to religion. Can I just do the right things and be satisfied? Can I be cleansed that way? Can I be good enough to earn purification? To find peace and rest. Can I just do enough good stuff? I'll just busy myself. Can I wash my hands enough that I'll be in, allowed into this wedding feast? And again, the answer is no. It's incomplete. It will never be quenched. It just doesn't work. Religion won't satisfy. It will never be enough. And then Jesus arrives. And as the master of the feast says, he has saved the best till last. He saved the best till last. And and it wasn't the ignorant bridegroom of our story who, poor guy, had no idea what was going on. But the true bridegroom. And, and, And Scripture tells us all throughout 
that Jesus is this bridegroom. He, he calls himself that it's all throughout the Gospels. This idea of him being the bridegroom to the church is all throughout the New Testament letters. It's all throughout the book of Revelation. And, and we see at the end of the story in Revelation, we see a wedding feast, a wedding that is coming. And Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is being made ready as a bride for the bridegroom, Jesus. And then there's going to be an everlasting wedding feast. One that will never end. That's, that's the picture that Scripture gives us of eternity. An eternal feast, an eternal wedding feast where we celebrate the bride being wed to the bridegroom. All because of the saving blood of Jesus Christ. God saved the best for last. And you and I cannot comprehend how great that wedding feast will be. Everything you and I have ever enjoyed in our lives is nothing but a foretaste of what is to come. But never again does the one in Christ ever have to say, there is no more wine. The generous, all-sufficient blood of Jesus satisfies today and forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, in this story we see the thoughtfulness and the kindness of saving an embarrassed bridegroom. We see his deity, his power to do a miracle, to change ordinary water into the best wine. But more than all of that, we, we get a foretaste of a wedding and a wedding celebration of Jesus bringing his bride home and taking her forever. Father, give us, give us hope and joy as we see this picture of not just any ordinary wedding, but a vision of what is to come, that the all-sufficient grace of Christ is enough. And the only thing that will ever, ever satisfy us it's Christ. Thank you, Father. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.